Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Tripp. Today, our guest is Max Schoensberg. He is a research associate in the Department of History at the University of Liverpool. Earlier this year, he published The Persistence of Party, Ideas of Harmonious Discord in 18th Century Britain again published earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Max. Thank you so much, Ryan. Great to be with you. All right. So um, I'd like to add also, this is an entry in the Ideas and Context series for Cambridge uh, University Press. So before we dive into the prompts, why don't you tell us about this striking cover image on your book that my daughter was staring at, as well as... Uh, perhaps how you came to the uh, the idea that eventually became the book. Sure. Um, so uh, the front cover is one of the election paintings by William Hogarth, uh, painted in the late 1750s. Um, William Ho- Hogarth painted four paintings um, depicting um, elections uh, in, in in Britain in the 18th century. So the first painting depicted um, an election entertainment. So a dinner when, where um, candidates were hosting uh, voters. Uh, the second I- the second painting uh, depicting canvassing of voters. Uh, the third one the the, uh, the voting itself. And then the fourth painting, uh, the chairing of the winning candidate. And this chairing ceremony um, turned into a riot uh, in, in the, the, this uh, painting by, by Hogarth. And it's, uh, all, all these paintings are in the book. Um, uh, but the fourth one uh, is, is the one I've chosen for the front cover because I, uh, I think it uh, captures really what the book is about, the turbulence of party politics in 18th century Britain. You also asked me, Ryan, about how this book began. Um, in some ways, it began as so, so often with uh, first books as a PhD thesis, um, and it's it's uh, an expansion of my PhD thesis at, at the London School of Economics uh, between 2014 and 2018, uh, it, it's a uh, re- revised and uh, very much expanded um, version of my of my thesis. Um, I would probably also like to say that it started even before that. Um, so I, I wrote my master thesis at the, at uh, Queen Mary University of London with Richard Burke as my supervisor on uh, Hume's writings on party back in two thousand and twelve. Um, before my MA and my PhD, I had mainly focused on contemporary history. And originally, I was planning on doing my PhD on 19th century history. 
during the course of my MA thesis, I, I was captivated, however, by uh, scholarship on the 18th century, uh, by the likes of John Pocock and Ishtvan Hunt, uh, but even more importantly, by the Scottish Enlightenment and above all, David Hume. And when I discovered Hume's essays on party, I believed that I had found something I wanted to write about, which could connect my earlier interest in contemporary history and contemporary politics, um, as well as the history of the the 19th century with the 18th century. And when I started to dive into the scholarship, I found that um, Hume's contribution to the subject of party had often been ignored, uh, or at least minimized. uh, And that's that's how... My, my research on party started, and that's really when the book began uh, as an MA thesis before it became a PhD thesis. And, and now, now, of course, it's a book. So let's dive into the questions here. So first off, why were 18th century political writers and Anglican proponents, such as Jonathan Swift and Thomas Gordon, among others, why were they critical of parties, especially in Roman faction versus party contexts? And what about Jacobites and dissenters in Ireland and Scotland, given the expansion of British fiscal policy after the uh, Williamette uh, Revolution? Well, party-based politics was a relatively new phenomenon in the 18th century. The Whig and Tory parties emerged at the time of the exclusion crisis uh, in the English Parliament in the late 17th century. Um, And um, after the beginning of annual sessions of Parliament in the wake of the Glorious Revolution in 1688, Um, 89, political parties became an entrenched part of political life. And this quickly generated a debate about whether parties were an unavoidable part of modern parliamentary politics, uh, and indeed whether they were beneficial or pernicious. In this debate, parties were blamed for encouraging a form of herd mentality in politics. Even more fundamental was the concern that parties intensified division and turned neighbours into enemies. So, for example, Joseph Addison wrote in the Spectator magazine that he was afraid that the seeds of civil war um, could be found in party division. And this was a very common worry at the time. Um, The 18th century still lived with the memories of the civil wars of the 17th century. However... Alongside this criticism of party, many acute political commentators realized that parties were not going to go away. They were a price worth paying for parliamentary politics and ultimately a price worth paying for political freedom. As Montesquieu put it in his History of the Roman Republic, a state without parties was a state without liberty. And I think this paradox of party uh, is really what the book is about. So on the one hand, parties are um, a concomitant of free government and in that sense a blessing. Uh, But at the same time, they also lead to instability, turbulence, mistrust among people. And this paradox of parties, of course, uh, a paradox which is still with us. Um, And uh, I think this is well captured by a quotation from John uh, from uh, John Toland uh, from 1717. He wrote the following: "Parties in the state are just like the nature with heresies in the church. Sometimes they make it better, and sometimes they make it worse. But held within due bounds, they always keep it from stagnation." Ryan, you also asked me about uh, Jacobitism. Um, Jacobitism 
was a uh, major political question in the first half of the 18th century. Um, uh, and uh, Jacobitism, the, the Jacobites were the supporters of the uh, rival Stuart royal family after the Glorious Revolution. So, so, so the uh, the post um, royal family in Britain, um, and um, the enduring strength of Jacobitism, and especially its connection and its association with the Tory party meant that it took a very long time for the Protestant settlement to be on a sure footing. Uh, so th- there were many uh, Jacobite risings and plots and um, invasion scares in the 18th century. Uh, and um, it, it is, as I've already said, a key con- context for party politics, since many Tories were periodically involved in Jacobite plotting, and as a party, they were very often uh, associated uh, with the movement by their opponents. Um, and there were also many consistent Jacobites among the among the Tories. And the Jacobite menace, the fact that you had a rival court, and the fact that you had these rebellions and, and Jacobite risings and um, civil civil war. Um, uh, tendencies and the, the seeds to civil war meant that it took a very long time before um, party could become accepted because party was party and faction, par- party politics uh, was was very often associated with the menace of uh, of Jacobitism. So accepting party, uh, some people worried would mean accepting Jacobitism, and uh, f- from 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 there on, the step to uh, civil war was going to be a very uh, small one. So one of the uh, early in your study, one of the, m- the more significant figures that actually resonates throughout your book is a uh, is Paul Paul de Rapon, okay, and um, his 1717 dissertation on the Whigs and the Tories, as well as his multi-volume history of the realm of England. Can you explore connections in that context between specific groups within Roundhead Cavalier Party designations and specific groups within the Whig and Tory Party designations, particularly um, when you situate it uh, within ancient constitutionalism, self-interest, religion, and then um, I think country and court alignments and all the above? Sure. I think uh, for the benefit of the listeners, maybe we should say a little bit about Paul de Rapantora uh, before we before we address the question more directly, uh, since he's not um, as much of a household name as some of the other thinkers and figures in, in my book. So Paul de Rapantora was a French Huguenot, meaning a French Protestant. He was expelled from France after the evocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, when the French Protestants were uh, basically kicked out of France. Uh, uh, Rapin then went to um, uh, the Dutch Republic uh, before coming to um, England. Um, he was most famous for writing a history of England, um, and it, beca- it became the standard history of England for a very long time in the 18th century before it was replaced by David Hume in the 1750s and 60s, several decades after Rapin had written um, his history of England. Um, it was very much the most important Whig interpretation of the English constitution in the 18th century. In an American context, 
Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, both preferred Rapin's history to Hume's. And as you rightly point out, um, Ryan, uh, Rapin uh, believed in a form of ancient constitutionalism, uh, and he believed that um, uh, Britain, or more specifically England, was the only only country really in Europe that had um, preserved its ancient constitution, its ancient parliamentary constitution, and it had not uh, been, um, uh, it had not uh, degenerated into absolute monarchy, unlike so many other countries uh, in, in Europe. But before Rapin had written his famous history, he had written a long pamphlet, which you've already uh, mentioned, Ryan, uh, and, and this pamphlet uh, was entitled A Dissertation on the Whigs and the Tories. It was published in 1717, but written uh, a year before. This is a very important text for my study and for the subject of party in the 18th century, not only in terms of its historical insights, but also in the sphere of political theory, Uh, because this is the first text that offered a powerful argument in favour of political parties as distinguished from the social forces and private factions someone like Machiavelli had written about in the Italian Renaissance. So Rapin argued that the two parties in Britain, the Whigs and the Tories, represented the two pillars of the mixed and balanced constitution, parliament on the one hand and monarchy on the other, and both parties were necessary for the equilibrium between these two parts of the constitution. Both parties were likewise necessary for balance in the religious sphere, uh, which was as important as secular matters in public life at the time. So one party favoured the Church of England, that was the Tory party, and the other toleration for Protestant dissenters. And according to Rapin, the only way to achieve a sustainable medium between these two positions was competition and mutual checking and balancing between the Tory and the Whig parties. So the idea was that these parties would alternate in government and take turns to hold their opposite number to account when out of power. And in order to make this argument, one of the things Rapin did was distinguish between different segments within the parties. Um, So between religious Whigs and political Whigs, religious Tories and political Tories, and um, uh, these groupings, as, as you've already um, uh, highlighted in your question, these groupings were related to civil war parties uh, of the 1640s, according to Rapin. So uh, the Whigs, both the religious Whigs and the political Whigs, were descendants of the Roundheads, so the parliamentary side in, in this conflict. And the Tories were the descendants of the Cavaliers, the King's Party. Ultimately, the party division could be traced to the Reformation in England and Scotland, um, so not so much a split between Catholics and Protestants as sectarianism within Protestantism, and disagreement about the direction of the Reformed religion uh, in the British Isles. So according to Rapin, that is very much how the Civil War starts, the War of the Three Kingdoms in the in the middle of the 17th century, and that legacy is also what... Um, creates party conflict at the time of of the exclusion crisis and going all the way into the 18th century. So let's talk a little bit about somebody who many of the listeners may may be or may not be familiar with, uh, Viscount uh, Bolingbroke. 
Um, please explain his rigid early 18th century distinctions between the Cavaliers and the Roundheads um, and related partisanship, as well as uh, Tory versus Whig partisanship, and his distinctions between party and faction, all in the context of his reification, or I think reification, of ancient constitutionalism and his ideological restructuring of the parties into court, country, and uh, Jacobite. And if you uh, want to address um, his idea of a patriot king, Go right ahead. Sure. So once again, I think we need to say a little bit about Bolingbroke, although he might be more um, uh, well-known than than Rapam. (laughs) By the the time Bolingbroke wrote his famous uh, writings on party uh, in in the uh, 1730s in in particular, um, before then he had been a parliamentarian in the beginning of the 18th century, he was a Tory uh, in, in Parliament. After the Hanoverian succession, he um, uh, he uh, backed the wrong horse, as it were, and he fled to France and very briefly took up, took up a position at the Jacobite court, so, so uh, the rival court championing, uh, championing uh, the claims of the Stuart pretender. Um, th- however, his association with, with the Jacobite court did not last very long and he very much took the flack for the Jacobite failure um, at, at the uh, Jacobite rising of 1715 uh, and uh, he was after that he, he became uh, he became uh, uh, derided as a, a man who had let down two different courts in less than a year because he had fled from he had let, fled from Britain and then he had um, uh, he he had served the Jacobite court, but but he he as I said took the flack for for the failure of 1715. This meant that he had to spend nearly a decade in exile in, in France. Um, during this time, he tried to return to Britain. He wanted to return to Britain, and when he did, when he was allowed to return to Britain in the in mid 1720s. He was not allowed to take up his seat, uh, return to his seat in the House of Lords. So he was barred from active politics. And instead of this, he became a political journalist, and perhaps the most famous political journalist of the first half of the, 17th, of the 18th century. So he started a journal called The Craftsman. Uh, and in, this pa- in, in the pages of The Craftsman, he justified the existence of an oppositional counterparty, which was conceived as a constitutional party contending that the government of the day, and that was Walpole's uh, Whig party, had betrayed the core principles of the constitution by corrupting parliament and making the legislature too dependent on the executive. And Bolingbroke separated the political landscape into three camps. So first, the enemies of the government, but who were friends of the constitution. And this was a reference to his own counterparty. Second of all, those who were enemies of both, both enemies of the government and the constitution. And this was a reference to the Jacobites. And finally, those who were friends of the government, but enemies of the constitution. And that was the court Whigs. Um, And uh, to save the nation, according to Bolingbroke, the enemies of the constitution had to be opposed and opposition had to be systematic and concerted. And it had to be be carried on on the principles of the counterparty. 
And you also asked me about uh, Bolingbroke's uh, perhaps most famous writing, the idea of a patriot king, published um, uh, or written originally in 1738, but published later in the 1740s. Uh, in this text, there are many negative comments about parties. For example, that parties are political evils, uh, and we can't, of course, ignore such statements. Um, and this text has often been read as a pie-in-the-sky attempt to abolish parties and political conflict altogether. Uh, and uh, you know the idea, that the idea behind this text is that all political actors would unite in awe of the virtuous patriot king. But my book shows, however, uh, that the patriot king should be the, the patriot king should be read as an opposition tract. Um, so, so um, crucially in this text, Bolingbroke emphasized that causes for opposition may arise even in the reign of a patriot king. And he was explicit. He was uh, explicit that parties divided over political issues would survive even during the reign of a patriot king. And although the patriot king would not um, uh, govern by party, like Bolingbroke believed that George I and George II had done by um, uh, supporting the Whig party exclusively, Bolingbroke stressed that the patriot king would be at liberty to take sides in political disputes uh, as long as uh, he, he did not govern by party, as it were. So you mentioned David Hume earlier. What were his distinctions between personal and real, uh, using uh, his words, parties, including the real tripartite branches of interest, principle, and dynastic, I suppose, Jacobite um, affection? And what about his 1741 promotion of a court-country division? And how does his skeptical Whig history of party constitutionalism and uh, ecclesiasticism diverge from Bolingbroke's? Um, and if possible, if you want to address what happened to the country party opposition after the fall of Walpole, you can. Sure. So few, if any, political thinkers of the 18th century dealt as thoroughly and extensively with party as David Hume. And these uh, distinctions you are uh, referring to come from uh, Hume's essay of parties in general, first published in 1741. And as you say, Hume divided parties into personal and, and uh, real, but he added that most parties were a mixture of both. So personal parties, so personal factions, were most common in small republics uh, where domestic quarrels often became affairs of state. Uh, and this was in particular relevant for um, the Italian Renaissance and an earlier period of um, the Italian city-states. And, and Hume refers to various um, such personal factions in, um, in Italy. Um, but his main interest um, was parties which he classified as real. And by this he meant those representing a more tangible difference. And in this category, he made um, a um, tripartite uh, classification, uh, as you mentioned, Brian. So it, it, he um, uh, differentiated parties uh, based on interest, parties based on principle, and parties based on affection. Very interestingly, parties based on interest, um, Hume, he, Hume called these parties the most reasonable and the most excusable of all factions. And this was a very bold step by Hume, 
since at the time party was for most people only tolerable when they um, uh, embodied principle, whereas parties representing interest were seen as perpetuating the reign of corruption. So why did Hume think that parties based on interest were the the, uh, the most excusable? So first of all, they were inevitable. With the um, history of uh, the Roman Republic before his eyes, Hume argued that when parties represented different orders in the state, such as uh, nobles and people, uh, nobili and plebe in Machiavelli's language, uh, and when these orders had a part in government, they naturally follow a distinct interest. And considering the selfishness implanted in human nature, it would be vain to expect anything else, according to Hume. And in contrast with these parties based on interest, parties based on principle, and especially speculative principle, were known only to modern times, and they were, according to Hume, the most extraordinary and unaccountable phenomenon that had yet appeared in human affairs. The visions from principle, according to Hume, gave rise to madness and fury, uh, and he linked the um, ideological differences to religious um, controversies um, in this regard very much in the same mold as uh, as Rapin. Um, And the reason why Hume was particularly worried about these parties was that, um, like religious fanatics, uh, parties based on principles, or parties motivated by principles, try to make other uh, try, try to con- convert and uh, and and um, uh, win over uh, other people, uh, and, um, uh, and 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 this was this was a source of discord, according to Hume. Um, the rise of Christianity expl- explained why parties from principle were known only in modern times, whereas the ancients had parties from interests, such as nobles versus people as well as personal factions, such as those of Caesar and Pompey. Um, um, and and um, uh, so, so that's basically the reason why Hume preferred parties based on interest compared with parties based on principle. So parties based on interest were um, inevitable in a mixed constitution, uh, and they were also uh, more... Um, transparent and accountable, uh, whereas um, parties animated by principle very often led to fanaticism uh, and uh, and even civil war. And Hume concluded the essay with a paragraph on the third kind of real party, and that's parties based on affection. Uh, and by this, Hume meant dynastic parties. Um, in other words, this is a reference to um, to Jacobites, which we were already uh, said a little bit about. Um, Hume had little sympathy with this type of party, as it was often very violent. Uh, at this time, in this early essay, uh, in, in, in his early essays of the parties of Great Britain from uh, 1741, he sought to downplay the significance of Jacobitism in his native Scotland. As we may come on to later in this podcast, um, he, he revised this view l- later on. Uh, we may come on to that. You also asked me about um, Hume's promotion of court-country division uh, and how he differed from Bolingbroke. 
so, so I, let, let me address that uh, as, as well. So Hume argued that party division was inevitable in mixed governments such as the British government, that uh, so mixed governments that were delicately balanced between um, monarchical and republican elements. Um, in addition to this uncertain balance, people's passions and prejudices would necessarily generate different opinions concerning government. Um, and um, those, so, so according to Hume, those with a mild temperament who love peace and order and detest sedition and civil war would incline towards monarchy and entrust greater powers to the crown than those who were bolder and more passionate lovers of liberty. And this was a division between court and country, which were roughly parties of uh, the government and, and uh, the opposition, or um, uh, a party of the executive and one of the legislature. Um, and uh, according to Hume, the court and country parties would always subsist as long as Britain remained a limited monarchy, meaning as long as Britain retained a powerful parliament. So, so far... Hume was, um, uh, to an extent, in agreement with Bolingbroke, who also promoted a court and country uh, division. But in terms of analysis, the key area where Hume diverged from Bolingbroke was on the um, uh, on the way he treated the Whig and Tory dichotomy. So in open disagreement with Bolingbroke, Hume argued that this unfortunate division had indeed survived and it had not disappeared entirely. Um, so Hume uh, b- believed that the, the Tories had survived and that they had a power base which was more consistent and reliable than Jacobitism, and, and that was uh, high church Anglicanism. Um, and uh, as, as Hume writes in um, in the essay, um, I'm, I'm quoting from the essay now, so he says that there are very considerable remains of that party in England with all their old prejudices. Uh, and that was very much something Bolingbroke denied or Bolingbroke tr- sought to uh, downplay. So that, that's a key difference between the two. Um, uh, and another very important difference is, of course, also that Bolingbroke writes as a partisan of the counterparty, promoting the counterparty, whereas Hume writes as a non-partisan, trying to analyse politics um, without taking sides, or sometimes taking uh, the side of one party and sometimes the other, but certainly not uh, following a consistent party line. Uh, That's, of course, a very important difference between Bolingbroke and Hume as well. Um, very briefly about the um, uh, about what happened to the country opposition after the fall of Walpole. So the counterparty uh, alliance uh, platform, if you, if you like, before uh, the fall of Walpole was um, um, uh, a, a platform which united Tories with opposition Whigs. Um, so so um, Bolingbroke and, and some of his friends representing Tories people like William Wyndham in Parliament. Um, and then um, uh, Whig, w- w- uh, in alliance with Whigs um, in opposition to Walpole, um, notably William Pulteney. Um, however, after the fall of Walpole, the, the opposition Whigs abandoned the Tories in opposition uh, and they took office um, and, uh, and titles. So William Pulteney, um, was elevated to the House of Lords and became the Earl of Bath. 
And this destroyed the confidence between the Tories and the Whigs in opposition. And in some ways, it ruined uh, the country alliance, which had always been a fragile alliance and never really a working alliance. Uh, but but the, um, uh, the, the events of, of 42 with Paltney abandoning the Tories in opposition was really the nail in the coffin of uh, of the country alliance. Uh, however, the language of the country party remained and it was occasionally revived uh, even after this event. So heads up to our uh, listeners, we're going to spend a little bit of time on David Hume. Uh, in the context of notions of Jacobite and versus Tory passive obedience, or Jacobite-Tory passive obedience, divine right and hereditary right, what were Hume's two major objections to the idea of a Whiggish low, low church original contract? And also, why did he ultimately support the Hanoverian secession? Yes. So as a political philosopher, thinking about political obligation, which was a central question in political thought since at least uh, Hobbes in, in the 17th century, and especially since uh, John Locke's social contract theory at the end of, of the 17th century, uh, uh, which Hume believed had become the party creed of the Whigs. Um, the Tories, uh, on the other hand, at least at the, at, at the grassroots level, and especially many Jacobites, still held on to the, to, um, the idea of the divine right of kings. So, so uh, the idea that uh, the monarch's power derived directly from God. Um, so, so many of uh, many believe that these ideas have become uh, extinguished, uh, and um, um, this is also something Hume suggested in his early essays. However, many of these ideas uh, resurfaced and reemerged, um, uh, especially in Scotland after the Jacobite Rebellion of forty-five, and that's something Hume. Um, focused on in the wake of the 45. So Hume wrote a series of essays on the original contract and um, uh, and pass- passive obedience, which was a version of uh, divine right of king, uh, divine right of kings um, theory. So for Hume, contract theory was both a historical absurdity, since there was no historical evidence of these original contracts between governors and governed, uh, but there was also a philosophical absurdity since so few people walked around thinking about whether they have consented to government. So most people simply obey government out of habit, according to Hume. So uh, instead of um, consent, Hume believed that government had to be judged on its present merit and its utility uh, and its ability to promote utility. And its foundation was to a large degree irrelevant for Hume. But the main reason why Hume was against a Jacobite restoration uh, and, and why he was um, he came he came down um, in favor of uh, the, the Hanoverian um, succession was simply because he was not a counter-revolutionary. So as he had set out already in his first publication, a treatise of human nature, book three of which was devoted to politics, few if any governments in history had a better foundation for their authority than present possession, and a sudden change would always result in confusion and bloodshed. The Hanoverian settlement, according to Hume, had attained longevity, and for this reason he believed that the Hanoverians were now rightful kings according to um, uh, um, uh, the imagination of a majority in the country, even though it may have been a slender majority, at, especially at the beginning. 
So while it may have been difficult for an impartial patriot, um, to, to use Hume's phrase, to choose between Hanover and Stuart uh, immediately after the Act of Settlement in 1701, when Hume was writing nearly half a century later, the Hanoverian regime had become consolidated and, and at at that point, it would be highly unwise to restore the Stuarts by way of civil war. Time had given legitimacy to the settlement, uh, even if no one could have known at the outset that it would uh, turn out to be beneficial. So once again, government had to be judged on its present merit, and its foundation was, um, by and large, irrelevant. In his 1750s History of Great Britain volumes, um, including the History of England, Please explain Hume's interpretation of the emergence of court and country parties during the 1621 Parliament, how his narrative of the spirit of liberty versus the revolution and manners in turn connected to the rise of the roundheads uh, and the uh, cavaliers as well as the Whig and Tory parties, and how all of, all of this compared uh, with the earlier uh, Rapal narrative. Um, and if you want to highlight um, Hume's belief that a religion, faction, and interests were mutually supportive after the client of principle you can go right ahead sure so uh, hume followed rapin in arguing that a uh, party as a parliamentary phenomenon began in the reign of james the first um, and the underlying facilitators could be traced to the previous century to the uh, uh, elizabethan age um, so the split between uh, split in the protestant church between episcopalians and the puritans um, as well as a gradual revolution in learning and manners taking place um, in, in the 16th um, as well as in the beginning of the 17th uh, centuries. Um, so the, uh, the age of Elizabeth was the dawn of the mixed constitution since the precious spark of liberty, uh, to use Hume's phrase, had been um, uh, kindled and preserved by the Puritan sect. And as a result of differences in religious opinions, England, from from that uh, time onwards, contained the seeds of intestine discord, uh, to use uh, th- this uh, very evocative phrase um, used by Hume in this context, but it comes um, uh, ultimately from, uh, from Livy's histories, and it's a very common phrase in, in the 18th century, intestine uh, discord. Um, so... Uh, these novelties in the Tudor period, which uh, truly took hold in the 17th century, meant that the love of freedom acquired new force in the shape of a passion for a limited constitution. Uh, and uh, Hume believed that even though the spirit of liberty had begun uh, under Elizabeth by the Puritans, it was in the 17th century it truly became a force to be reckoned with. The opposing doctrines of divine right and passive obedience could also be traced to the age of um, Elizabeth and to um, religious sermons in in her reign. Um, so they were not invented in the reign of uh, James the First in the Stuart age, uh, but but they. Um, they they were were given new force uh, in opposition to the passion for limited government, which had um, which which had begun with uh, with, with the Puritans. Um, so in this clash of contrasting principles, religious as well as political, the first Stuart monarch could not resist putting his head above the parapet. So James I, who was a scholar in his own right, um, albeit uh, not a very good one, according to Hume, um, 
James had an unfortunate fondness for discussing theology, and he was, of course, not impartial, but very much on the side of the um, established church. So all these factors combined to produce an environment conducive to the birth of parties. Like Rapin, Hume identified the Parliament of 1621 as the time when um, the, the court and counterparties emerged um, really for the first time. And the immediate context um, of um, the beginning of these parties was um, uh, pub- the, the public displeasure over the king's policy towards Spain and um, Roman Catholics in England uh, more broadly. Uh, at this time, James uh, James I sought to bring about a marriage treaty with um, the Spanish king, uh, and, the, and, and this led to anti-Catholic sentiments, and this fueled um, um, uh, the parliamentary opposition to the king, uh, and it, um, it, it created op- parliamentary opposition uh, of a new kind, according to Hume. And perhaps to address briefly uh, your your second point about how religion, faction and interests were mutually supportive. Um, so as should be clear by now, the 17th century parties disagreed and clashed as much, if not more, over religious politics as they, as they did over secular matters. Uh, and in this period, it is indeed very difficult to disentangle one from, from the other. But this was also tied up with interest. So both Hume and Rapin believed that principles and opinions, religious as well as political, mattered more for the rank and file. Um, and and um, the party leaders, by contrast, were mainly motivated by self-interest. And they uh, could they very often appealed to different religious views. Uh, and uh, and um, um, sought to build up uh, a, p- a power base uh, and support uh, using religious principles, religious opinions, uh, and as well as prejudice uh, in order to get to gain power. So that's how um, opinions and principles, on the one hand, uh, interacted with uh, with interest in politics at, at this time in in Hume's uh, framework. Please discuss the impact of the Pitt, uh, Devonshire, and Newcastle Pitt coalitional governments on Hume's ideas. Um, I'm thinking about the old core, his historical trajectories with the Whig and Tory party ideologies, as well as his notion of the perfect commonwealth. Um, and if possible, please uh, also compare these ideas to a young Edmund Burke's lamentations on the absence of proper constitutional court and country parties. Sure. Um, so um, Hume's final standalone treatment on the subject of party and British party politics, if we uh, discount the major revisions he did to his essays and uh, his historical works, was an essay Hume wrote and published in 1758 called Of the Coalition of Parties. And it was written when um, the British government was a coalition government between the Newcastle Whigs and William Pitt the Elder and his followers. And just a bit earlier than Hume's essay, um, which was published during the Newcastle-Pitt coalition government, Burke wrote his first unpublished essay on party, uh, which uh, was only very recently discovered, only um, um, uh, nearly 10 years ago, so actually less than 10 years ago, by 
Richard, Richard Burke uh, in, in an article uh, where he, he um, um, presented this discovery in an article in the, in the Historical Journal in 2012. And this was a real landmark achievement uh, by, by uh, Richard Burke, since uh, new writings are quite rarely discovered by such canonical figures as Burke. Uh, and this is the essay I um, I, I, I use in my um, in, in 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 this chapter where I look at uh, Hume's last essay together with Burke's first essay on party. As a footnote, I have myself uh, helped to find an unpublished writing by Bolingbroke a few years ago, although it was really my co-author Joseph Hone who's a fantastic historian who made the discovery and I, I merely helped him uh, make the case for it. But it was um, uh, nevertheless very exciting uh, to find uh, a new writing by, um, by Bolingbroke. But to get, um, to get back on track and to go back to your question uh, and address it more directly, the Tory party started to disintegrate in the late 1750s and it started to lose its uh, identity as an opposition counterparty uh, as they started to lend support to William Pitt uh, the Elder when he was in government. At the same time, uh, Newcastle's loss of power in 1756 uh, ended, at least temporarily, the monopoly of the power, um, uh, the monopoly of power on the part of the great Whig families. As Jacobitism was becoming less relevant as a live political question, the Whig monopoly of power was threatened and um, the um, the partial suspicion of Hanoverian Britain on the part of many Tories started to become less important and less relevant. And all these changes would be uh, accelerated and solidified by the accession of George III in um, 1760, which really shook things up, uh, as I think we may come on to uh, in a moment. Um, but Hume's argument in his final essay on party of the coalition of parties is that um, the the the, uh, the parties that are dangerous are the ones that are um, divided on the essentials of government. Um, for example, the succession to to the throne in the case of the Jacobites, or how the government should be organized, which was the case of the civil war parties of the seventeenth century. On such questions, there could be no compromise or accommodation, according to Hume, and such parties could not be accepted since it could um, that type of party conflict could easily turn into armed conflict. Um, but recent tendencies to coalition government indicated that such conflicts had come to an end, and Hume very much sought to promote this, um, what he viewed as, as an agreeable prospect, uh, and he's, he sought to encourage moderation, uh, and that's how he viewed his own um, enterprise in um, the Stuart volumes of, of the history of England, even though not uh, not everyone uh, viewed it, uh, to put it mildly, not everyone uh, viewed it in the same way. It actually became very controversial. But the difference between Burke is important here because Burke was worried that the end to principled party conflict would make way for a power scramble and the rise of personal factionalism, which is actually what happened. Um, so, so Burke worried that politics would become entirely self-interested and devoid of principle. 
so this is an important difference between Hume and Burke, uh, since Hume was more worried about the pernicious effects of principles, especially religious principles, whereas Burke was more concerned about the decline of principle in politics. Um, we should also say that this is a reflection of Burke and Hume being of different generations and um, uh, coming of age in slightly different contexts, even though at this particular time they, write, they, they wrote in the same context. But this is really the beginning of Burke's uh, career and um, uh, the end of, of Hume's. Uh, and th- this distinction and, and these important differences between Hume and Burke is something I, I write about in the book, but I've also written about it at, in, um, at greater length in a recent article in the History of European Ideas which is actually available uh, for free. So, so all of your listeners should be able to, to read it if they're interested. Please situate John Brown's, moving away from Hume, John Brown's uh, 1750s multi-volume, An Estimate of the Manners and Principles of the Times in Comparative Contexts, especially like uh, Bolingbroke and Rome, and explain Brown's principle of manners, his concerns about foreign invasions and the Tory embrace of country opposition as well as his proposals for civil liberty in that Spartan factionless state? Well, so I think that uh, John Brown's estimate, which was a real bestseller in its day, we should say, should be read in the context of a crisis in British politics. So it was published shortly after Britain's defeat by France at the Battle of uh, Minorca in 1756. Uh, And... um, uh, other works were written at the same time, which we can compare it with, um, that were also very um, uh, worried and um, concerned about uh, a decline uh, or, or Britain's uh, decline uh, and its um, yeah coming back um, on the back of this defeat uh, against um, the rival France. Uh, shortly afterwards, we should highlight um, uh, Britain unexpectedly started to turn the tables on France. And uh, after this, the estimate and uh, what Brown had to say lost some of its urgency. But when it was first published in 1756, it was very much a bestseller uh, and a very uh, widely read and widely discussed work. And as Brown's title may, um, make, makes um, clear, his primary target was the, uh, the ruling character of the present time, which he described as vain, luxurious and selfish. He was convinced that Britain's initial bad fortunes in war against France uh, were related to a general decline in manners and principles. And this was exemplified by the spirit of party and the spirit of opposition. So the... the book was very much an attack on the manners of the time. It was an attack on selfishness and luxury, and it was also an attack on party politics. But some years later, in in 1765, uh, Brown wrote a lesser-known work called Thought on Civil Liberty, on Licentiousness and Faction. Uh, And this is a very important work for my book, since in this this book, this later work, Brown sought to demonstrate that the country could avoid faction and still be free um, in some way similar to the way uh, the Genevan Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who also disliked parties, uh, had done um, by pointing to the ancient Republic of Sparta, which was allegedly free whilst also um, uh, being um, without 
party conflict. So he took he he went one step further in his uh, sixty five in, in in his work from seventeen sixty five, and this work is interesting in uh, in my story for a couple of reasons. Um, so one. Uh, one is that Brown presents his arguments against the inevitability of party as an argument against most other political writers of the time. And he singled out Machiavelli and Montesquieu in, the, in, the, in this particular context, but he also attacks Bolingbroke and Hume elsewhere in the work, as well as in the previous uh, estimate. So they are also parts of the picture. So rather than seeing it as axiomatic that parties were bad uh, before Burke, Brown viewed himself as putting forward an original argument when he pointed to the problems of party. And this is interesting because it helps us understand um, uh, what Rapin, Bolingbroke and Hume uh, wrote earlier uh, better. It it helps us understand um, the, the, the context it's also interesting since it, it is uh, one of the few works that Edmund Burke directly cites in his Thoughts on the Course of the Present Discontent in 1770 uh, when Burke uh, advanced his well-known defense of party. Uh, and um, he, he, adv- he advanced this um, uh, defense of party in opposition to Brown and, and uh, interestingly in opposition to uh, the 1765 work Thoughts on Civil Liberty So I think on that note uh, let's talk about Thoughts on the Cause of the Present Discontents by Edmund Burke um, A heads up to the to our listeners, we'll be kind of delving into Burke's ideas and the Whigs for largely for the remainder of the podcast So Thoughts on the Cause of the Present Discontents by Edmund Burke. Um, how was it an attack on the purported double cabinet um, of Lord Boot, um, and and also a critique of the court system and promotion of party connection. Um, instead of, uh, you know, instead of popularity to challenge a perceived court cabal. Um, also, how and why did uh, Burke link his aristocratic Rockingham Whigs as merchant allies to the Whig junto during the reign of Queen Anne? Yes, so Burke's argument in this very important and now canonical text was related to an interpretation of recent British politics. And I I will try and summarise the argument as neatly as as possible, but it it is a a rather complicated one. So before the accession of George III in 1760, um, the two predecessors of George III, George I and George II, selected um, the administration from the great Whig families and from those associated with the Whig party. Um, So since the king did not have any direct power, or at least not much direct power in his own person, according to to this system of government, the maxim that the king can do no, no wrong was held sacred. Instead of the king, who was the nominal head of the administration, the first minister was held responsible for all measures of government, and he needed to ground his strength on a majority in the House of Commons. The old system presupposed a strong opposition as a necessary control on the government, uh, and this was uh, the parliamentary. Um, um, yeah, this was a parliamentary opposition uh, that would overthrow an administration rather than the monarch according to this interpretation of parliamentary politics. And because of the Jacobite reputation of the Tories, the Hanoverian monarchs were compelled to put their faith exclusively in the Whigs, and they were thus obliged to diminish their own personal power and outsource it, in a sense, 
to the Whigs. But on his accession, George III, who was convinced that his predecessors, his grandfather and his great-grandfather, had been too subservient to the Whig families, wanted to end the Whig monopoly on power. And he opened the door to all talents uh, that had previously been excluded. And this helped to break the unity of the Whigs, which had already begun to crumble. Uh, It also um, meant that the Tory party, and once again, the unit of which had already begun to uh, disappear, uh, but it, but it, this um, uh, helped to um, um, ensure that the Tory party lost its coherence and its identity as an opposition party. Uh, and um, this is when division in parliament really gave way to personal factionalism. But a partial exception to this was Burke's Whig party, the Rockingham Whig party, because this particular faction, if you like, viewed itself as the Whig party. And it, it, did, it did have link, uh, it, it, it did um, have uh, links to key elements of the Whig party in the first half of the century, um, for instance, via the Duke of Newcastle and the Hardwick dynasty. Um, so the Rockingham Whigs believed that George III and his Scottish favourite, Earl of Butte, had res- resuscitated the, a Tory system of government by patronising Tories and former Tories and increasing the powers of the Crown and the Court. And one example of this is uh, Butte himself, who was not a parliamentary figure of, sta- of uh, any statue, um, uh, but, 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 but he was very much a court figure. Uh, and he was indebted for, uh, for his prominent position. He was indebted entirely to George III. And Bute had been first appointed as leader in 1762, uh, um, leader of the government. Uh, and this was based, as, as I said, uh, solely on, on the basis of his personal relationship with the king, rather than his standing among the wider political class. After his resignation in 1763, it was claimed that he continued to pull the strings behind the scenes since it was still close to the king and still advised the king, at least so it was believed. And this is what was meant by the double cabinet, which was viewed as nefarious because of its unaccountability uh, and its potential to increase the power of the crown at the expense of the other parts of the mixed constitution. Protecting protection of the constitution was integral to Burke's political thought and uh, to his Whiggism, and that meant protecting all the parts of the constitution. So the, the democratic part in the shape of the House of Commons, the aristocratic part in the shape of the House of Lords, uh, as well as the monarchy. But it had to be a limited monarchy as part of the mixed and balanced constitution, uh, and uh, not a monarchy that that sought to. Um, strengthen itself too much. And for Burke, the uh, Junta Whigs, who were a group of Whigs in the late 17th century uh, and, the, and the early 18th century, uh, a group of Whigs that were oriented towards um, um, holding power and negotiating with the monarch, uh, these Whigs were the ideal for Burke. They were the uh, gold standard because of the importance they placed on party loyalty and party solidarity. These Whigs believed that they needed to act in concert in order to be effective, and they needed to be bound together by common opinions, common affections, and common interests in order to act in concert. 
the key behind the success of the Whig Junto at the beginning of the 18th century was that they were resolved to stand and fall together. And for this reason, they were a, a gold standard, which uh, Burke hoped that his own party connection, the Rockingham Whigs, could emulate. And as Burke very famously uh, writes in The Thoughts of the Course of the Present Discontent, when bad men combine, the good must associate, else they will fall one by one. So politics for Burke was not about um, having a clean conscience, but about making a difference. And party was a necessary instrument that could unite power and principle. So in the context of his definition of party... How did Burke distinguish party connection among Whig aristocrats, as well as an intermediate power of Whigs in the House of Commons from faction? And why did he dismiss the ideas of proponents of parliamentary reform? Yes, thank you, Ryan. Maybe we should read uh, Burke's famous definition of party uh, for the benefit of the listeners. Um, So so, um, he very famously uh, defined party as a body of men united for promoting by their joint endeavors the national interest upon some particular principle in which they are all agreed. Uh, Has, of course, become a very famous definition of party. And it's not entirely dissimilar from modern definitions of party by political scientists, although it's not entirely the same, but but there's certainly uh, common ground. So at the heart of this definition is a a distinction between party and faction, which was very uh, very important for Burke. Uh, And in this limited sense, of course, Burke um, shares uh, some common ground with Bolingbroke's uh, distinction between party and faction. So according to Burke, parties... uh, are devoted to promoting an understanding of the national interest and they are united by principle and not exclusively by interest, although interest can be a supporting principle, but it can't be the only principle. And we have already said a little bit about why this was an important idea for Burke. So um, uh, efficacy and efficiency in parliamentary politics demanded uh, party connection. It was the only way to make a difference. Um, But in a strong sense, party connection ensured the survival of Britain's parliamentary system, according to Burke. It ensured the survival of Britain's mixed and balanced constitution as established uh, at the the Glorious Revolution. Um, And to make this argument, Burke uh, Burke drew on a uh, very influential argument in the uh, French thinker Montesquieu's um, Spirit of the Laws. Um, And this was an argument about intermediary powers, uh, pouvoir intermediaire in in, in French. So uh, intermediate powers as a bulwark against despotism. Uh, And despotism could, of course, be royal, aristocratic or democratic, at least in in Burke's mind. And this this argument was important in Burke's present discontents, um, so he argued that it was a na- it was in the nature of despotism to uh, abhor power held by any means but its own pleasure and to anni- annihilate all intermediate situations. And under the first two Georges, Burke believed that the Whigs had been an intermediate power between the people and the court. And this is also where the point about aristocratic party becomes important. The core of Burke's party was made up of the major aristocratic families, such as Cavendish and Devonshire, 
uh, indeed Rockingham himself. the first Rockingham ministry had been taunt, um, taunted at the time for being um, unusually aristocratic. Um, of course, we should take those accusations with a pinch of salt because the Rockingham ministry uh, was also um, accused of sacrificing the landed interest for the benefit of the merchant community in cities such as London and Bristol. Um, but nevertheless, that ac- accusation was there that this was an uh, unusually aristocratic uh, party, um, and uh, and that accusa- accusation has of course still remained. Uh, it, it's, it's still with us uh, when um, Edmund Burke, as a political thinker, is is discussed uh, by historians and political theorists today. But in the present discontent, Burke started that he was no. Uh, he, uh, uh, excuse me, Burke stated that he was no friend to aristoc- aristocracy, uh, in the sense that you, the word was usually understood. So he was not in um, in favor of what he called austere and insolent domination. So he supported Whig aristocracy in a different way. So he believed that the Whig aristocrats possessed property, rank and uh, quality, and this gave them a degree of independence which enabled them to stand up to the court. So the property, rank, and quality of the Whig aristocrats made them more independent um, than, say, um, uh, members of uh, members of new families such as himself. So that, that's one thing we should remember, Sel, that, that, uh, that uh, Burke was was um, uh, a new man. He had identified as a novus homo, uh, and uh, he he came from a new political family, uh, and and that was very important for his for his identity. But at the same time, he believed that um, the principle of aristocracy was very important, but not for the sake of aristocracy itself, not for the benefit of aristocracy, but for the sake of the whole, because aristocracy, uh, the aristocrats could have this independence which would enable them to stand up to the court. So that's the sense in which Burke um, believed in aristocratic party. The question of parliamentary reform is a difficult question um, because in a strong sense, Burke was a reformer and he came up with his own system of economical reform, which was a way of making the legislature more independent of the executive and reducing the financial power of the crown, so in in a strong sense, empowering the House of Commons um, uh, vis-a-vis uh, the, the the court, um, and this was a system of reform Burke came up with in the late seventies, and he also implemented it to, to some extent in the in the early seventeen seventy uh, excuse me in the early seventeen eighties, when his party was in in uh, in government uh, briefly. However, as you rightly point out, Ryan, he was, of course, very concerned about more far-reaching parliamentary reform, such as having more frequent elections. At this time, elections took place every seventh year, um, uh, and um, political reformers wanted to reduce this to um, every every year, or at least every uh, every three years. Uh, And this was something Burke was against. He was also against... um, uh, expanding the size of the electorate, because of course this was long before um, universal suffrage uh, and long before universal manhood suffrage. Even though there were some boroughs that had close to universal suffrage, it, it was a very irregular system of voting at at the time. 
in in pre-reform Britain. So you could say that Burke was a purist uh, Whig in politics, in a sense. So he believed that the purpose of Whiggism um, was to protect the uh, mixed and balanced constitution. And this meant that it sometimes needed to be reformed in order to be preserved. And that was the purpose of his uh, economical reform, um, financial reform, if you like. But he was against root and branch reforms. Indeed, he dreaded root and branch reforms. And empowering the democratic element of the constitution would be as unwise as bolstering the court and the king's power, according to Burke. Please trace the consequences of the coalescence of the Foxite and Portland Whigs, including the death of Rockingham and the 1791 Quebec Bill, for Edmund Burke. Um, also, if you can um, engage with Burke's shifting positions on the American crisis and the significance of his 1790 reflections on the revolution in France, as well as his old Whig association of the 1701 settlement with uh, the hereditary principle vis-a-vis Protestant dissenters, pro-French delegates, and Thomas Paine. Well, the Rockingham Party only held power very briefly in the the 1760s um, uh, uh, at first. Um, Thereafter, the Rockingham Party uh, um, spent uh, 16 years in opposition until they finally re-entered government in 1782. Before then, the American crisis gave coherence uh, to um, both government and opposition in British politics. And since the Rockingham Party had repealed the Stamp Act in in their first period in office, the Rockingham Whigs posed as the real friends of America. Um, and Rockingham's um, sudden death on the 1st of July 1782, just three months after he had taken office the second time, split the ministry as Burke and many many of Rockingham's followers resigned, refusing to serve under Shelburne, whom they disliked deeply, and Burke especially. Under the new leadership of Portland in the Lords and, and Charles James Fox in the Commons, um, the new leaders who took over after Rockingham, Burke's party together with Lord North and North's followers, brought down Shelburne's ministry the following year over the generous priest preliminaries which uh, Shelburne had negotiated with America. Um, So Burke was back in office with his party. He served as uh, paymaster general in the Fox North coalition. Um, Portland, the new torchbearer of aristocratic Whiggism after um, Rockingham, was head of the treasury. Fox was Foreign Secretary and North Home Secretary. Without Rockingham, however, Burke's position within his party was weakened and eventually broke with his friends um, under, crit- uh, under the critical circumstances of the French Revolution, um, as we will come on to in a moment. The, for- the Fox North Coalition did not survive for much longer than the second uh, Rockingham administration. It was eventually brought down by the monarch over regulation of the East India Company, with the king declaring that everyone voting for Fox's India Bill w- was his enemy. At least at the start of the new opposition campaign, Burke showed himself more than willing to continue in a spirited opposition to, to the crown and its new minister, William Pitt the Younger. 
However, at this time in the mid 80s, late 80s, um, uh, 1780s, that is, he started to act more independently. For example, in the Regency crisis in the in the at the end of the 1780s, uh, but perhaps most importantly and most famously uh, by way of his involvement in the impeachment of Warren Hastings, former Governor General of India. Um, and this created distance between Burke and the Foxites. Fox did not like Burke's obsession with impeaching Hastings and going after Hastings for uh, abuses committed uh, and crimes committed in in India on the part of the East India Company and the British government. Um, the trial uh, of Hastings went on for much longer than Fox had initially expected. And uh, since Pitt refused to make the party question by offering limited support to the, to the impeachment uh, in the beginning at least fox lost interest in the question but in the wake of the french revolution burke started to uh, diverge sharply from the protestant dissenters who were a very important consi- constituency for the whig party and important supporters of the whig party He was increasingly worried that Protestant dissenters were proceeding systematically to the destruction of the constitution in some of its key parts, and he believed that they imitated events in France. And this comes back to his worries about far-reaching parliamentary reform, which he was against. Uh, So in March 1790, Burke astonished Fox and many of his friends by actively opposing a new motion to repeal the Test and Corporation Acts, which barred Protestant dissenters from taking office. So the reflection on the revolution in France, published in November 1790, um, became Burke's most famous condemnation of the French Revolution. And it's it's probably today his most famous book, his most famous text um, in, in political philosophy. But more specifically, it was a response to the dissenting section of the broad Whig landscape, and more precisely to Richard Price's Discourse on the Love of Our Country uh, from 1789. In this address, Price had compared the French Revolution with the Glorious Revolution, and he seemed to be calling for general revolutions across Europe. And Burke was increasingly concerned with his own colleagues' sympathetic attitudes towards the French Revolution. And Fox periodically praised the revolution publicly. And in private, he said that the storming of the Bastille was the greatest and best event in world history. And and this was something that um, deeply worried Burke. Please situate Burke's promotion of aristocratic Whigs and the discordant harmony of the mixed constitution within the context of Portland's support for the Wyndham Third Party, the ensuing Pitt Coalition, and Foxite perspectives on French revolutionary militancy abroad? Well, what's happened after Burke's split with the Whig Party in 1791 uh, is rather complicated. Um, so his conflict and his, um, his opposition to Fox came to a head in 1791, and uh, he split with Fox very dramatically in, uh, in the House of Commons, uh, an occasion which moved uh, Fox to tears. Um, so after this, um, even though Burke was at the beginning the only one who really... Um, separated uh, and split from the Whig Party. The Whig Party um, 
at large started to become divided between forces uh, forces that were in favor of parliamentary reform and for, and uh, who were uh, broadly friendly towards the french revolution and those that were firmly against both for similar reasons as burke and burke's disciple windham departed from the whigs in a uh, self-styled um, third party in in uh, 1793 so he was the second big loss for the Whig Party, uh, roughly two years after uh, Burke had, had departed. Um, the, the leader of, of the Whigs in the House of Lords, the Duke of Portland, hesitated for a long time because he was so attached to the principle of party unity. You could say that he was so attached to Burke's argument in uh, the thoughts on the cause of the present discontents um, that he was very afraid of splitting with Fox publicly, even though in private he agreed uh, with Burke about the danger of parliamentary reform and the dangers posed by the French Revolution. Um, eventually, however, Portland and several of the aristocratic Whigs, as many uh, as well as many of their followers in the lower house, joined in active support of Pitt's government. Uh, and uh, very shortly thereafter, they formed a, a coalition with with uh, Pitt um, in in the summer of 1794. The formation of this coalition coincided with uh, Burke's retirement from Parliament, so he played uh, no active role in in the coalition. Um, and though he he supported it, of course, and he believed that it could save uh, save uh, the principles of the Whig Party, and it could revive the principles of true Whigism. Um, however, he was quickly disappointed, uh, and the reason for that is um, because uh, he was very disappointed with Portland's performance in the coalition. Essentially, so as as had been promised, uh, Fitzwilliam, who was the heir of Rockingham, became. Um, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, six months into the coalition. Um, but since Fitzwilliam supported full Catholic emancipation, uh, he was recalled by by the government in uh, in, in in Britain in in uh, in, in London, uh, and uh, Burke, who also supported Catholic emancipation, was distraught because he believed that Fitzwilliam had been sacrificed and that the cause of the Catholics had been sacrificed, and he, and he, he became furious with Portland, uh, because not only had Fitzwilliam and the Catholics been sacrificed, but he believed that, the, um, that this uh, uh, betrayal destroyed the, the, the uh, destroyed party. It destroyed the Whig party, according to Burke. Um, and uh, this was something he regretted. Uh, and he died um, shortly, uh, or a few years after this. So he died in 1797. So he did not live to see the reunion of the Whig alliance in the early 19th century. As Emily Jones has recently shown in a um, masterful study of uh, Burke's reception in the 19th century, Burke was, to a great extent, rehabilitated among Whigs and liberals in the 19th century, uh, long before he became a hero among conservatives. But he did not live to see um, the reunion of um, the Whigs who had uh, who, who left uh, the Fox sites uh, before reuniting re, uh, with them in the early 19th century. With some exception, Portland was um, so, someone who um, did not go back to to the, to the Whigs, but instead became something of a royal 
servant and something of a someone who, when he later became prime minister himself, relied on uh, support of uh, Pittites. So to wrap up here, please compare and contrast Burke's ideas and partisan sentiments and unintended consequences as a result of partisan dialectics with those of Hume, Adam Ferguson, Adam Smith, maybe even James Madison, one or all the above. Sure. So I think the first thing we should say is that Burke was a long-standing student of Scottish Enlightenment philosophy. He was acquainted with David Hume, a good friend of Adam Smith, and he uh, reviewed the works of Adam Ferguson, and he read William Robertson and corresponded with, um, with Robertson. The idea of spontaneous order was crucial for the 18th century Scottish intelligentsia. So in a key formulation of this idea, Ferguson wrote um, that, uh, quote, nations stumble upon establishments, which are indeed the result of human action, but not the execution of any human design. And this quotation uh, comes from Hume's, uh, excuse me, it comes from Ferguson's essay on the history of civil society from 1767, which Burke reviewed uh, very favorably in um, the annual register. So late, um, later in his career, in the third letter on the regicide peace from 1797, um, written at the very end of Burke's life, when Burke was no longer a partisan, when he was no longer um, connected with any political party, Burke gave his most non-partisan statement in favour of parties. He now argued that the old Whig and Tory parties had sustained the British mixed and balanced constitution by their coalitions and by their mutual resistance. So he, he no longer gave all the credit to, to the Whigs. Instead, it was the Tories and the Whigs parties together that had sustained uh, the mixed and balanced constitution, and in particular, their uh, competition. And Berg's words in this context are quite similar to a key quotation from Hume's History of England, even if Hume in that context uh, speaks of court and country parties when he said that um, they um, gave life and vigour to politics. Um, And this notion of unintended consequences made possible a sceptical acceptance of party by Hume and later by Burke in his letters on the regicide peace. On this understanding, parties did not have to be purer than pure to serve the public good, by following their own principles and interests, they naturally checked and counterweighed the opposite party. And since you mentioned uh, James Madison, I think there is a phrase, um, uh, a very Humean phrase from the Federalist Papers, which I think is relevant here, when Madison says, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. So uh, I have one follow-up question. What's uh, going on with you next? Are you planning any projects that you can disclose at this time? Sure. Thank you for asking, Ryan. Um, So I'm currently part of a team project at the University of Liverpool, uh, where we are uh, working on 18th century subscription libraries and community formation in uh, Britain, Ireland, in America. Uh, It's a project which combines the history of reading with the history of the book, Uh, and intellectual, social, political and cultural history. There's also a strong digital humanities component uh, to this project since we are building a database and we are also um, 
the Liverpool project, we're also co- co-authoring a book, uh, and that that is myself, uh, Professor Mark Tausi, and uh, Dr. Sophie Jones. Besides this co-authored book, I'm also working on my second monograph, uh, my second sole authored monograph, which uh, has the working title, The Making of a New Political Nation in, in Britain. And the idea is to look at um, ideas and movements for parliamentary reform, democratic reform, if you like, and look at the whole period from the levelers in the middle of the 17th century uh, to the Chartist in the middle of the 19th century and the period when reform started to be implemented in, in stages. Uh, and of course, the 18th century is absolutely crucial for, for this topic since um, um, since uh, ideas for reform developed in this period and we also saw uh, the early stages of political movements um, for uh, political reform in, in, in this period. So, so, th- so those are the two main projects, uh, both at an early stage I'm, I'm working on currently. I hope you remember new books in history for both those projects. Certainly, Ryan. Always good to uh, com- come back. So thank, thank you so much for, for this interview. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. So uh, the book is The Persistence of Party, Ideas of Harmonious Discord in 18th Century Britain, published earlier this year by Cambridge University Press, an entry in Ideas and Ideas and Context series. On behalf of Max, um, this is Ryan Tripp. I've been your host for New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Please tune in next time.